welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 120 The AC Module Line for DD. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that both this week and next week we'd be covering modules on the program, but I hadn't decided how I wanted to present them. I mean, when we did our four-episode run earlier this year, it was the most popular modules according to you, so that sort of organized itself. But doing an episode or two on modules outside of that concept sort of stumped me. So I went with the simple solution. We'll cover the modules according to the series they're in. In other words, the B series or the X series or whatever. And because I think the D&D sets from the 1980s don't always get the love they deserve, I decided we'd start with the AC series of modules. Those were created specifically for those beloved box sets, and the materials were spread out over the four sets, which for the uninitiated were the basic, expert, companion, and master sets. It also needs to be noted that the modules in this line were a mix of adventure and various rule supplements, so don't be surprised by the contents of this week's episodes. That means it's time to crank up the tour bus and get everything rolling along. We begin the AC line, appropriately enough, with AC-1, The Shady Dragon Inn. Released by TSR in 1983, it was written by Carl Smith, with Larry Day handling the cover art and Jim Holloway the interior art. The Shady Dragon Inn checked in at 32 pages with an outer folder. The inside of that outer folder was a 20-inch by 17-inch map of the Shady Dragon Inn, So that was a bit different than some of the other modules we've seen since we started covering them. For the record, the Shady Dragon Inn was created for use with either the basic or the expert set. The Shady Dragon Inn is a game supplement, plain and simple. However, for a majority of D&D DMs, it was also probably one of the first times they'd gotten supplemental materials to help flesh out their own campaigns. For those wondering how in the hell that was possible, you need to understand this. The four D&D boxes were always intended to be the introduction to D&D for new players. AD&D was supposed to be the system for players to graduate to, and that system would get all of the supplement love. It was assumed, for the most part, that D&D players and DMs would use published adventures to get through their time playing, and that many DMs wouldn't build their own campaigns until or unless they decided to switch over. So, the Shady Dragon Inn was created to provide DMs with some of the stuff they could use to drop into their own campaign. The major selling point was 118 pre-generated characters, which would provide DMs with plenty of NPCs to drop into a game, or to hand to new players interested in trying the game but not sure how to build a character. Another interesting feature of the pre-generated characters is that Smith decided to present some of them on their own while presenting others in adventuring parties. The character section takes up the first 26 pages of the book, and it involves some serious breaking down of races and classes. So, let's go where the supplement went and break down those ourselves. 23 different fighters made their way into the pages, and their names ranged from Abel Artone to Viking the Little. And my group thinks my NPC names are weird. Anyway, each character presented has a stat block, brief equipment description, physical description, and a rather short biography. I'm pretty sure it was expected or anticipated that if any of these characters were going to be used long term, that the DM would expand on what was presented. 
18 magic users, they weren't called wizards just yet, made their appearance, and their names were just as interesting, ranging from Epris the Wondrous to Zarkon the Blue. The accompanying info is the same as with the fighters, though their spells were also presented as a part of the info box. For those needing healing, 17 clerics were presented, ranging from Ambrose the Celt to Penelope of Westhaven. The info boxes for clerics were pretty much the same as magic users, including the presentation of the spells they know. Thieves. They weren't called rogues until 3rd edition for those keeping score at home. We got 14 of them presented in this release, and their colorful names ranged from Aiden Abelfingers to Zacharias the Nimble. Their info boxes looked more like the fighter boxes than the other two classes. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, races were also represented in here, so let's break those down as well. I do want to note that just like the classes presented, each of the racial characters presented came with a full stat block as well. Ten dwarves found their way into the release, and they had those traditionally dwarven names like Astrid Helmsplitter and Ulf the Sledge. Twelve elves were present, and they were all magic users, as was the case throughout the original version of D&D. That means their spellbooks and spells contained within were included in their stats, and names like Torquil of Deep Hollow were attached to our long-lived friends. Halflings. We got ten of them, and their names ranged from Big Old Burlwell to Watt Watershed. No gnomes, half-elves, or half-orcs here, as they didn't exist until much later in the D&D universe. There were 13 special characters represented in this section of the book, and they were each from the D&D toy line that was out and being promoted at the time. The other big difference is that their descriptions were much larger than the others, though they pale in comparison to some of the NPC descriptions we get today. The Shady Dragon in itself rounds out the rest of the supplement. It's not an adventure, it's a location that DMs can use when building their own campaigns, and therefore this section contains a full breakdown of the end for use in that matter. Carl Smith, realizing he might have missed a thing or two in the original release, wrote an article for the Polyhedron Newsine later in 1983 that provided more details about employees and the various furnishings of the inn. And, of course, the description of the inn includes full details on any groups of adventurers staying in the inn at any given time. Doug Cowie reviewed the Shady Dragon Inn for the July 1984 issue of Imagine Magazine, Overall, he called it, quote, very welcome, end quote, though he noted the various character descriptions were a bit lacking as they really didn't get into details of what they were carrying. He also called the section on parties a, quote, waste of space, end quote, since in his opinion, it repeated information presented elsewhere in the release. He noted that while the Shady Dragon Inn wasn't what you'd call a, quote, must have, end quote, he noted that having the inn itself in the supplement made it above average and, quote, worth considering, end quote. Module AC2, Combat Shield and Midi Adventure, was released in 1984. Written by David Cook with art from the legendary Jeff Easley, this supplement was intended for use with either the basic or expert sets, though it should be noted that the included adventure was built for parties of 4th to 7th levels. The Combat Shield was a fairly new concept in tabletop role-playing games. I say fairly new because many GMs had been using methods to protect their materials and die rolls from the prying eyes of players previous to this, but most of those had been homemade. I mean, I remember hearing about a GM who actually sat behind a fabric screen while running a game so you'd never even see their face. 
What these homebrewed solutions lacked was something this release included. Printed information and stats for some of the most often utilized situations in a game. Saving throw tables, thief abilities, undead turning, to hit rolls, combat sequence, monster XP tables, player XP tables. Pretty much all of the info Cook thought a DM might need at their fingers was presented here. And as you might have guessed, the combat shield was the precursor to the DM screens we have today, though it wasn't nearly as fancy. The adventure itself, which runs about 14 pages, is the treasure of the hideous one. There's nothing overly complex about the storyline of this. The group finds a message that leads them towards what they believe will be a long-hidden treasure, and they fight their way through a number of different challenges to get it. And the DM can choose what treasure or treasures the group finds, as the end of the module provides a list of possible items. One thing to note about the adventure, however, is that the level requirement was one you needed to stick to as Rosentos the Vampire was the big bad evil guy, and vampires could be death, literally, for a beginning level party. So that's why it was recommended that expert level players run through this adventure. We return to Doug Cowie for our review, and it comes from that same July 1984 issue of Imagine Magazine. He gave it an overall positive review, praising it for the looks, especially Easley's cover art. He enjoyed the functionality of the screen, noted the table choice was sensible, though he did add that some of the tables were, quote, quite difficult to read, end quote. Insofar as the adventure, Cowie called it, quote, rather good, original, and carefully thought out, end quote. He stated that the adventure alone made the supplement worth the price, but added the shield was, quote, a reasonably useful bonus, end quote. 1984 saw a number of releases in the AC line of supplements, and AC3, 3D Dragon Tiles, featuring the kidnapping of Princess Aurelnia, was next in line. Written by Gary Spiegel, it was similar to AC2 in that it contained both an accessory for the game use and a mini-adventure. The entire release clocks in at 14 pages. Now, what's so important about some cardstock tiles? Again, we have to look at this period of time in gaming. The tabletop role-playing game hobby, as we've discussed on more than one occasion, can trace its roots back to tabletop miniature wargaming. And as we've also discussed more than once, buying the minis for those types of games can be expensive, as can building terrain and other setting pieces. In the early days of D&D, gamers were doing just that, buying miniatures they either used as-is or modifying to fit the look and feel of their characters, then creating their own dungeon models based on either their own creations or that of the adventure modules they were running. For those who had the disposable income for that sort of thing, it worked fine. But if you didn't have that money, it meant you were in a bind. How could you visually lay out what was going on in the game? That's where this release comes into play. It included a number of cardboard cutouts of maps called Dragon Tiles that could be arranged in whatever configuration you needed to match the dungeon you were working through. In addition, there were a number of cutouts of monsters and characters, which came with stands, and they worked like the lead minis did. So for a hell of a lot less than the cost of building it yourself, you now had the ability to lay out a dungeon and have miniatures for your characters and your monsters. To break down the items included, there were 51 figures, two sheets of 84 two-sided feature tiles, and a dungeon mapping grid which was designed to help DMs lay things out quickly. The tiles and characters tie into the adventure, and while it's not anything overly complex, writers online have seemed to overall find it to be decent. 
It comes with eight pre-generated characters, so if all you wanted to do was pick up and go, you had options. The basics of the adventure are that a royal woman has been kidnapped, and the group is tasked with her rescue. The entire adventure is set indoors, which helps take advantage of the new tile set. A number of cool monsters appear here, including ghouls and rust monsters, so there's plenty of stuff to keep the group entertained and challenged. No review here, but I did want to note that AC3, along with AC2, found itself reprinted for the 1984 release 10th Anniversary Dungeons & Dragons Collector's Set. It was a box that included the rules from the basic expert and companion sets, along with AC2 and AC3, modules B1, B2, and M1, character sheets, and dice. If you've never heard of it, don't sweat it. I hadn't either before I researched for today. It was a limited edition set of 1,000 copies and was sold by mail and at Gen Con 17. And if you've got one of those babies, I would love to see pictures. Hit me up at badgmproductions at gmail.com. AC4, The Book of Marvelous Magic, was released in 1984. And unlike many of the releases in this line, it did not have an adventure included with it. As you might have guessed from the title, it's a magic index. And we'll expand on that in a moment. Gary Gygax and Frank Menser wrote the release, and it was aimed for use with the basic expert and companion boxes. It also has an appendix that lays out how you could use these items in the AD&D version of the game if you were so inclined. The artwork, by the way, has been praised for decades. Clyde Caldwell handled the cover, while Doug Watson had the duties for the interior art. Clocking in at 80 pages, this was literally an alphabetical listing of magic items for use in the D&D system. Over 500 magic items were laid out for use and were sorted by item type. Each item got a description and explanation of its powers. We could get into a description of some of those items, but I think you get the idea for what the release looks like. Jez Keen got the reviewer duties for the August 1985 issue of Imagine Magazine and was not a fan. He noted that the items fell into one of three categories, quote, sensible ones, the bad play compensatory ones, and the silly ones, end quote. He stated that this book is only good if you think, quote, there should be magic on every street corner, end quote. Overall, he suggested that GMs would be better off just creating their own stuff. I think we're just going to leave that there. Time to move on. Releases AC5 and AC6 both go to the same thing. Player Character Record Sheets. Now, I have to note that these releases weren't the first time sheets had been released. AD&D got the nod for that in 1979. Heck, these weren't even the first time sheets had been released for D&D. That was in 1980 with the Player Character Record Sheets. AC5 was released in 1984 and designed for characters in the Basic, Expert, and Companion box sets. The sheets were designed for the rules as written at the time and were laid out to be easy to read and use. However, shortly after this release, the basic and expert boxes got updates, which made the sheets they just released obsolete. So they hurriedly updated the sheets and released them as A6 in 1985. That version had 16 character sheets and 8 spell roster sheets. I don't think this requires a lot more commentary. I mean... Character sheets are character sheets, and we've got more items in this line to cover. Besides, having to release the same basic thing twice in less than a year due to rules changes calls back to the various statements I've made over the history of this podcast about the issues with TSR. 1985 saw a new DM screen be released. 
AC7 Master Player Screen featuring the spindle was designed by Bruce Nesmith with cover art from the legendary Larry Elmore. It was a cardstock screen with an eight-page adventure included. The screen was laid out much like the shield had been previously, with the major change here being the adjustments for the new rules for the basic and expert sets. So, let's talk the spindle. This was designed for the master set players, as it's for levels 26 through 36. And for the kids out there, you used to be able to go beyond 20th level. It was a different time. Now, I don't know what else to say about that. It's a pretty simple story. The group hears rumors about this mysterious spindle and decides to head out across the desert to find it. They've got a number of encounters with desert monsters before getting to the mountain the spindle's on. Then they fight mountain monsters on the way up. Once they get to the spindle, they enter, they fight the big bad evil guy, and can gain information about whatever the major quest is in their current campaign, or about immortality, if you don't have a major quest for the group. Air drakes, cloud giants, vampires, rust monsters. While the monsters are appropriate to the setting, the overall list almost reads like Nesmith took a monster manual and tossed darts at it. But player comments online seem to be primarily positive, so uh, who am I to judge? AC8, 3D Dragon Tiles featuring the Revenge of Rusak, was the last supplement with an adventure in it in this line. It's also the sequel to the previous 3D tile set adventure, The Kidnapping of Princess Arlena. Designed by Zeb Cook, with the art handled by Dennis and Martha Kalf, it was released in 1985. The adventure itself checked in at 8 pages, but it also had two cardstock sheets, a cardstock countersheet, and an outer folder. There's also an interesting story about the release, but I'm going to hold that until the end. The Revenge of Rosak is a wilderness outdoor adventure, so the tiles included with the set are designed for that kind of adventure. It's got more character tokens as well, so that you could replace your old, probably worn out miniature for a new one. Now, The Revenge of Rusak was written for a party of 6th to 8th level, and it's expected you'll be using the same characters that you did for the previous adventure. Our princess from that previous adventure makes her appearance as she's running away from the castle where her father the king had been killed and usurped by Ernst Ziegler, who's the former warden of the land. Ziegler also raised Rusak, who's the big, bad, evil guy for this adventure. The climax of the adventure is the group challenging the powerful wizard in his hiding place and hopefully emerging triumphant. So there you go. Now, here's the story about the release. When it originally came out, it had a fairly serious misprint on it, as it was designated AC3. Needless to say, that required an adjustment, so stickers were printed to place over that before delivery. However, TSR managed to mess that up as well. The stickers had AC5 on them. So, yeah, that was wrong as well. But in classic TSR style, they just didn't fix it. They just changed the designation in their product listing, and that means if you have a copy of this by chance, it's going to have a sticker with the AC5 designation on it. And I think I'm just going to shake my head and move along. 1986 brought the next release in the AC line. AC9 Creature Catalog was written by Jim Bambra, Phil Gallagher, and Graham Morris, with Keith Parkinson handling the cover art. The easiest way to describe the Creature Catalog is to call it a monster manual for D&D. And by D&D, I mean the boxes. It pulled together all of the creatures that had been published in various D&D modules to that point in time. For the record, that was somewhere in the neighborhood of 200. There were also 80 new ones created just for the release. 
Each creature got an illustration, full D&D stats, and descriptions of its abilities and tactics. They were also arranged by type, which means undead were all together, humanoids were all grouped together, and so on and so forth. Frank Menser's guide on balancing encounters by player level was also included, as well as a guide on environments and monsters. Reviewers agreed with my assessment of the catalog, and while some liked it, others found it to be only necessary for those DMs who feel the need to have everything all together all at once. I realize we're sort of petering out on these last few entries, but they tend to be more compilations than new creations, so there's not a whole lot to dig into. I'm including them here in the spirit of covering the entire line. That brings us to AC-10, Bestiary of Dragons and Giants. Released in 1987, it was edited by Deborah Christian, and Larry Elmore handled the cover, which has become a poster and print sold around the world. It's a 64-page booklet with an outer cover, and the inside of that cover folder provides the relative sizes of the various monsters included within. There was also a dragon spell generator, which would help DMs determine which spells a dragon might have and use, since that was a big thing in D&D at the time. The book itself lays out 14 different scenarios for each type of dragon and giant, and provides information on how these creatures live, work, and relax. Most of this information is new to the release, but the dragons and giants have been presented in a number of different adventures over the years. The only review I could find came from Dragon Magazine, and as you'd expect, it's rather complimentary, so we're going to toss it and go with the overall opinion of players who've commented on it online. They like it, though they do note that it could have provided more information about the creatures contained. More to the point, they asked for different dragons and giants, or at least some more stats on them. One more on the list for this week, and it's 1987's AC-11, The Book of Wondrous Inventions. Compiled by Bruce A. Hurd with art from Jim Holloway, this 96-page release has what's been noted by writer after writer over the years as humorous, magical devices. Lawrence Schick said it best in his 1991 book, Heroic Worlds, quote, Magic boomboxes, armored tanks, pretty funny, hey? Real knee slappers, end quote. And he wasn't amused, I can tell you. So you know what? I think with that, we'll just come to the end of today's tour. Next week, we've got another line of modules to cover for D&D. And since I'm looking at three different lines, I'm not going to commit to which one is going to go next. In the meanwhile, check out our other podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. This week, we pick up on our cliffhanger from last week and see if we can figure out exactly what in the hell is going on with the Brotherhood of Steel. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. As a reminder, Archon 46 is in Collinsville, Illinois, next weekend, the 29th through the 1st. We will be there all weekend doing live check-ins and a live episode of Role Playing History on Saturday. We look forward to seeing all of you there, so check out their website, archonstl.org, for more information. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. We're all over social media, so check out the info box for this episode or our website, badgmproductions.net. Next week, it's another line of classic modules for D&D, and I can assure you, as always, it's going to be well worth that listen. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're Role Playing History.